was going over the syllabus and just uh, checking our schedule coming up. Today is the 10th, and I kind of revamped some of the reading assignments for this time that we'd done through 14 last time, and I wanted to look at have you read chapter 15 in the book, which is what's up on the screen, reading purposefully, primarily because at the end of this chapter, you get into uh, various uh, rules related to structure, which is what I want to go over um, during this first session this evening. And then in the second session, we'll look at uh, information on, uh, look at chapter 18, because that's, uh, that's where we get into, um, uh, lead into Nehemiah, which was the assignment. We'll talk about that when we get there. So that's today. Then I have on there the 17th, which is next week, and that's our last session for a couple of weeks. Uh, November the 24th is a lead-in to Thanksgiving, and I chose not to meet then because I have to have all, all my material into Tommy the next morning for pre-trib. So I thought, well, I better not have class that night in case I need to get some things done. So we'll have that week off, and then the next Sunday, December 1st, is the Sunday after after Thanksgiving. Actually, I was completely messed up. I thought the 24th was the Sunday after Thanksgiving. That's what I thought. I had Thanksgiving a week earlier than it is, so that's why I had us off on the 24th, thinking that was the Sunday at the end of the Thanksgiving. And then the 1st, actually, that's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, but... Um, and then on December 8th, we'll meet on the 8th and the 15th. And then I really left the schedule open after that. Now, we could meet on the 23rd if that's still good for everybody, which would be good because that was, would give us three sessions on interpretation before we break because we're going to break for a month. And uh, so if, if that's good for everybody to meet that Sunday before Christmas, then we can do that. That's probably the 22nd. I think Christmas is on Wednesday. Is that right? So that'd be actually the 20, December the 22nd. Uh, that would be the last time we meet until I get back from Kiev, which is probably the last Sunday of January, and I get back right before that. So that's a I, I jet lag out by five o'clock. I'm a zombie after five o'clock. So we may just wait and start the first Sunday in February. So it breaks down pretty nicely. We would get observation completed before Thanksgiving, come back after Thanksgiving and have three Sundays dealing with interpretation, one final session on interpretation at the the first Sunday of February, and then the the rest of the Sundays in February we would cover application. And that would take us through, and so we would finish uh, the course about the end of uh, about the end of February, I think that would be about right. I just still have to work on that schedule uh, just a little, little bit. Anybody have any any questions? What about meeting on that Sunday night, the 22nd, before Christmas? Is that a problem for anybody? Are everybody going to be out of town, or is that too close to Christmas, or any problems there? Okay, let's go ahead and plan on meeting on the 22nd then, and then that way we can get good, a good three sessions in on interpretation. Now, I really haven't given you any anything other than what is in the Living by the Book book to read on interpretation, and that's a good basic starting point. If you want to read something um, else on interpretation, for example, over that period 
of January when I'm gone to Kiev, uh, we, you could read a book called uh, Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Zook. Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Zook. And if you get, uh, if you're interested, that would be a something to uh, to, to go to. Roy t- also taught at Dallas for many years. He went to be with the Lord this last March. Got to be, uh, I got to be good friends with him after I graduated from from a seminary. And it's a it's an excellent starting point for understanding uh, interpretation. What we cover in this in this type of class is just your your basic fundamentals orientation to to interpretation and then that would take you to a little uh little greater level okay so that takes care of the the business part let me open in prayer and then uh, then we'll get started okay father we're thankful that we had this time to come together this evening to uh, reflect upon the principles of Bible study, just thinking how to think about your word, to help open our eyes to what we see so that it, 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 it dawns on us what we're looking at, how to investigate, how to answer the questions that should be coming to our mind that we may be able to uh, just probe a little more deeply into our understanding of your word. And, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us this evening in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. In the book, and I have this up on the screen, I have to keep, I've got my hard copy here in front of me, so if I get lost, just somebody say something and uh, say move the screen or whatever. But I want to sort of think our way through a little bit in chapter 15 in Hendrick's book on um, on living by the book. This is a, He's titled this, Reading Purposefully. Now, purposeful reading, as he defines it here, coming out of an initial look at 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, if the Word of God is breathed out by God, if this is truly God's Word, then we should think about it a lot more, um, a lot more conscientiously than we do. We shouldn't take this for granted, and that seems to be a problem. We have the little adage that familiarity breeds contempt, and that happens where we, we're so used to having a Bible, having Bibles around that we don't uh, realize how special that is. How, In terms of church history, in terms of Christianity, we have more access to the Bible uh, than, than 99.9% of Christians throughout church history. And yet we are less knowledgeable about it and less, and, and we treat it with uh, less seriousness than, than people do who don't have it. When uh, Hendricks talks about purposeful reading, looks for the aim of the author. Now, it's uh, looking for the aim of the author. This is we're going to get into this more when we get into interpretation. But one of the central issues in interpretation is we answer the question, what does the text mean? Right now we're in observation where the focus is on what does it say. We're asking questions. What, what, what's there? What are the key words? Who are the key people? Where are the key places? What are we looking at? Uh, what's the flow of action? What's the structure? Which is what we're getting into in this, in this chapter. So we look for the purpose of the author in, in interpretation, what matters is what the author intends to say and not what we 
want or expect or anticipate the author, uh, the author to be saying. So one of the keys to looking at, uh, to understanding the aim of the author, the purpose of the author is to understand the structure. And I've talked about this the last few weeks and it's part, probably the hardest part I think for a lot of folks to get into is because it's been a long time since we studied grammar. And asking those questions, trying to uh, determine who, who who the subject is, who what the action is, and all of the other parts of speech. And so this, this will help a little bit. That's why I'm trying to spend a little more time on this, engaging in a little more dialogue, um, giving you more of an opportunity to feed, get, get feedback so that we can work work through the text. Uh, as Hendricks points out, the purpose comes across from the author through the grammatical structure. How the text is structured reveals the thought pattern of the author, how he uh, how he's expressing various emphases, what his logical structure is. These things are indicated uh, through uh, grammar, through the word order, uh, etc. And so as we go through this, as we turn the page, the thing to look at are the parts of speech. Now I'm going to let me enlarge this just a little bit to make sure everybody can read it. First of all, verbs. And this is something that I've pointed out in the study so far is when you look at a sentence, you look, we, we, you, a paragraph is made up of a collection of sentences, you identify a sentence, and then you look for the main verbs. Verbs communicate action. So you can develop a way of underlining, boxing, circling, highlighting your verbs so that you can take a look at a passage of Scripture and all the verbs are indicated a certain way. And then you ask the question in terms of uh, um, who's doing the action, but in terms of verbs, a verb is broken down into three categories. You have tense, voice, and mood. And uh, tense indicates the time of the action, whether it's past, present, or future. And so you look at a verb and you say, well, is this a past tense? Talking about something in the past, is it present tense or is it is it future? So you have you, basic ideas there. Then you have, in addition to that, we have other parts, uh, other other verb tenses that say in English that say something more about the kind of action. So in uh, when you look at a verb, you're looking for the two things, the time of the action and the kind of action. Okay? Time of action and kind of action. So time of action is going to be past, present, or future. Kind of action is whether it is continuous or whether it is um, it, it's just summarized as one event or whether it is completed, okay? So there are those three categories in terms of the kind of action. Uh, when you get a, a statement such as um, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples, is that completed action, is that ongoing action, or that is that simply a, a sort of a summary? And that is ongoing action. And you see this in a present tense. You can see ongoing action in future tense. 
you can see ongoing action and in past tense. Now, in Greek, that's expressed through what's called the imperfect tense, and, and that's ongoing action in past time, whereas the aorist tense is just summarizes that that action. That's the difference. In English, we just have a past tense, and and past tense would include both what they call aspects or both kinds of action. But in Greek, that's going to be broken down into um, just a summary. The aorist tense just is like a snapshot. Okay, so you go on a trip and you take a lot of still photos. Those are snapshots. That's like the aorist tense. Uh, imperfect tense is like taking uh, video. It's cont- continuous action in past time. So that's that's the distinction there. You have con- uh, so in terms of kind of action, you have uh, sort of the the summary action, which used to be called punctiliar action. Um, that was a technical grammar term, and it, it's just taking an event. It's not talking about it in terms of its duration, in terms of its completion. It's just saying something happened in the past. So that's that's just summary action. Then you have continuous action. And then you have a completed action. Now, completed action is what you find in perfect tense verbs. If something is in the perfect tense, it's talking about a action in the past that is completed. The most well-known example of that from Scripture is when Jesus Jesus said to telestai, uh, it is completed, and it refers to an act that is completed. And it usually emphasizes the ongoing results of that past completed action. But it's not ongoing action. It's not just summarizing it. It is completed action. So perfect tense always refers to completed action. And then you also have another tense called pluperfect, which is you're talking about the past results of a past completed action. But that's getting a little more technical than what I want to do with grammar right now. The main thing is just to, to understand the basic idea here of the, the past time of action, past, present, and future, and the kind of action, whether it's completed, whether it's continuous, or whether it's summary. That's Those are your main ideas in terms of, of the verb. Uh, a lot of times the verb, the way a verb is expressed in English is not going to be as clear uh, for for technical Bible study as it would be if you had uh, a knowledge of the original language, whether Greek or Greek, Greek or Hebrew. So that's where a commentary will will be helpful. But by giving you the basic definitions of kind of action and time of action that I've given you, that helps you to read. Uh, a commentary, perhaps, with a little more knowledge when they talk about uh, the tense of a verb, perfect tense, aorist tense, imperfect tense, that gives you basic idea so that that's not just something your your eye just goes past without paying paying much attention to it. A verb is going to have uh, it's going to have a subject and it's going to have an object. A subject and an object. The subject of the sentence does the acting. It performs the action of the verb. Uh, John went to the grocery store. The verb is went. Who performs the action? 
John. John is the grammatical subject. Went is an active voice verb. I got ahead of myself. We're talking about verbs. I talked about tense, and I left out the other two aspects, and that is, uh, or the other two points. Uh, the verb is going to be, uh, in English, a passive or an active verb. In an active verb, the subject performs the action of the verb. That's what active voice means. The subject performs the action of the verb. In a in a passive voice construction, the subject receives the action of the ver- of the verb. For example, if you have a, a sentence like "John hit the ball," John is the uh, hit in that sentence is an active voice verb. John performs the action of hitting the hitting the ball. Now. If you, he and John is the grammatical subject. But if you change the verb to a passive, the ball was hit by John. The ball is now the grammatical subject, and the ball receives the action of the verb. It's not performing the action, it's receiving the action of the verb. So, uh, in English, you're either going to have a pa- active or passive voice verb. Greek has a middle voice. We don't have anything like that in English. Middle voice basically is what they refer to as reflexive action. The the subject somehow somehow is also involved in not only performing but also receiving the action of the verb. For example, if you... um, If you were to be driving and you caused a wreck... You're both, uh, you might express the verb in a middle voice because you're not only acting, but you're also receiving the action. Sometimes a middle voice is used simply because it's, it's a, what they call a dynamic middle. It's doing, it's used for emphasis, but there's different meanings. But just remember that in Greek there are these different, uh, three different voices, active, middle, and passive. And, um, then we have what is called the mood, the mood. And the mood tells you something about uh, the, the, the the action itself and how it's perceived, okay, and, and how, or how it's expressed. If And there are basically three moods. Uh, there's a fourth mood, the optative in the Greek, that's used um, rarely. I think it's only about 47 times in the New Testament. So it's it's very very unusual, but the pr- primary mood is what's called the indicative mood. Remember back when you were in, uh, probably in elementary school and you learned that there were four different kinds of sentences. You had a you you had an interrogative sentence, which is a question. You had a declarative sentence, which is a statement of fact. You had an imperative sentence, which is a command, and uh, then you had an exclamation. Exclamatory sentence. So, in in that that's roughly um, roughly what we have in in moods in Greek. The indicative mood is the mood of reality. That doesn't mean it is real. It simply means that from the perspective of the author, he's viewing the action as as real, as something that has happened. Uh, obviously, if somebody is lying or being intentionally deceptive, they're going to express 
their view of reality as if it is, is actually happening. So just because something is in the indicative mood doesn't mean it is real in fact, but it is talked about as real by from the viewpoint of the author or the speaker. So the indicative mood is is uh, uh, roughly equivalent to the declare a declarative type sentence. An indicative mood sentence can be uh, verified or falsified. Okay, if you say the sky is blue or it is raining outside, these are declarative sentences. They would be expressed with an indicative mood. You can go outside and just see if the sky is gray or, or, or black or blue. You can see if it's raining or not. They, they, you can verify or falsify those sentences. The second kind of mood is the imperative mood. Imperative mood is exactly what it, what it suggests. It's a command. But a command can be used, an imperative mood can be used in different ways. You can express the command as if you're a, a superior or someone in authority telling someone uh, under you to do something. Or an imperative mood can also express a request, and it can express a request from an inferior to a superior. For example, in a prayer, as someone is uh, requesting God, pleading with God to act now, to intervene, he might put that in an imper- what's called an imperative of entreaty. You know, it's not an imperative of command. It's an imperative that is entreating someone, requesting someone to intervene and act a certain way. So there's different... Uh, there are different shades of meaning to an imperative mood. But if somebody says, you know, says, go to the grocery store, gives you a command, go to the grocery store, is that true or false? Neither. Neither. It's a command. A command cannot be verified or falsified. It's, it's a command. So it's simply telling someone, uh, what to do. So you have your indicative mood, mood of reality, your imperative, which is the uh, of command, your mood of command, and then you have a subjunctive mood, which is a mood of possibility, a mood of possibility. So uh, subjunctive expresses sort of a wish. I wish this were possible. Uh, so that's that would be expressed in a uh, subjunctive mood. Uh, uh, subjunctives can also be used. For imperatives, there there are other ways in which these things work, but that gives you the basic idea. Those are your three prominent moods that are used of verbs. Okay, anybody have any questions on that? And then a, a verb, a finite verb, is going to be performed by one or more people, so it's going to have a number. It's going to have tense, voice, and mood, and then it's going to have a, a number, it's going to be first person. It's going to have person and number. It's going to be first person I, second person you, third person uh, he, she, or it. And it's going to be, those are all singulars, or it's going to be a plural. We, you, y'all, or they. So when you parse and identify the, par- the, the components of a verb, it's tense, voice, and move, present, active, indicative, or uh, past, passive, indicative, and then it's going to have a number, first person, second person, third person, and then 
I mean, it's going to have person and number, but it'll have a new number there, an Arabic number in the parsing, one, two, or three. And then it will be uh, singular. These are usually abbreviated S or P, singular or plural. There's another uh, form that's related to a verb that, that sometimes in English is, might be translated as a, as a finite verb, and that would be a participle or an infinitive. And those are called verbals. The way verbals differ from finite verbs is they don't have a number uh, identifying person. They don't have a number identifying person. So it'll just say present active participle, present active infinitive, something uh, like that. There's no number. There's no 3S or 2P. Okay, now, uh, now I'll move on to subject and object. Subject, we have the one who performs the action in an active voice verb or receives the action in an active voice verb. I mean, in a passive voice construction. So an active voice, the subject performs the action in a uh, passive voice, then, um, the, the subject receives the action of the verb. Uh, the examples that he gives in the book, Philippians 2.3, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Now, you, that starts off with, let, what, what's the verb? Let's just identify that. What's the verb? Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Regard. regard. Now, we would say regard is a, um, is that going to be present tense, present, past, or future? Present. Is it an indicative sentence or is it a imperative sentence? It's imperative. Now, in English, mostly we think of imperatives as being second person. You do this. But this is a, in Greek as well as in Hebrew, you have a third person imperative, which is addressing a group saying, let each of you do something. And so it is a command uh, to a group, and this would be a plural. So we look at this, this a regard is going to be active or passive. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. It's, it's, it's active. Who performs the action of regarding? Hmm? Who's to re- who's to perform the action of regarding? Everybody. Everybody. The each of you. Technically, yeah. Each, let each of you. The you here modifies each. You have a prepositional phrase here. Each regard. So each performs the action of regarding. So regard is an active voice verb. The subject is each. Okay? Then Galatians 6, 4, let each one examine his own work. Uh, let's just look. You have two uh, clauses here. Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard uh, to himself alone and not in regard to another. Okay? So let each one examine his own work. What's the verb? Examine. Who performs the action of examining? Each one. Each one. That's the subject. 
Uh, and so it's an active voice verb. The subject performs the action of the verb. Is uh, each one examine his own work? Is this present, past, or future time? Present. In the second clause, and then he will have reason for boasting. What's the uh, what's the verb? Will have. The verb is will have. Is that past, present, or future? Future. Future. Who perform, performs the action of the verb? He. He. So he is the subject. It's an active voice verb. Uh, so it's a future active indicative verb. All right. So, excuse me? Uh, and then he will have reason, et cetera. Is that a relative clause? We'll talk about that in a minute. I just want I want to go through these two examples. First of all, look at a verb, look at its subject. So so the, the the most important thing to identify in a sentence is going to be your verb. Then you want to define who is who's performing or receiving the action of the verb and what that relationship is uh time wise. That's going to come from your tense of the verb. But then there's something that receives the action from the verb. That's going to involve your direct object or your indirect object. So in the first example in Philippians 2.3, let each is the subject, regard is your verb, who receives the action of the verb? One another. So one another is the direct object. So each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. So Paul, uh, address, so you just break it down, those basic components of the sentence. In Galatians 6.4, let each one examine his own work. Uh, what receives the action of the verb? Or what is the object of the action of the verb? Work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. Um, So the object of, in, uh, let, he, let each one examine the object is his own work. And you don't have an object in the second clause. You do have an indirect object into himself. But we'll get into, the indirect object gets a little more complicated. Modifiers. Okay, the modifiers are your descriptive words such as adjectives and adverbs. Adjectives define, say, some, tell us something about uh, nouns. And adverbs tell us something about verbs. And they qualify the verbs. They often tell us something about how many, how much, what color, what kind, uh, something of that of that nature. So you look at um, he gives the example here of Philippians chapter four, verse nineteen, my God shall supply all your needs. So needs here is a noun. And it's modified by 
an adjective your, which tells you whose needs he's talking about. And then it's further modified by the adjective all, telling you how many. So your indicates whose, and uh, all indicates how many. According to his riches, riches is the noun, his is a pronoun that is modifying riches, telling you uh, something about whose riches it is. Okay, so we pay attention to modifiers, breaking things down in structure. Then you have prepositional phrases. How many of y'all had to memorize a whole list of English prepositions when you were in school? Good. Hmm? That was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but boy, was that helpful. Uh, later on when I was in seminary. So prepositions are those little words in, on, by, uh, across, through, uh, during, what? Hmm? Yeah. Upon, through, to, so on, the, in, with, by, and so these give us lots of information, uh, in phrases. Uh, prepositional phrases don't have a verb or a subject. You just have the preposition plus the object of the preposition. So in Christ, in the beginning, by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, in the flesh, under the law, by faith. These are all prepositional phrases. Then you have, uh, connectives. Connectives are your conjunctions. You know, if you grew up on Sesame Street, then you're thinking about conjunction junction. You got and, that was after my time. You have and, but, other conjunctions um, develop out of that. Sometimes you can have now, uh, you, you have different, different, but the, your main ones are and and but. Uh, but emphasizes contrast. Now, sometimes as we've seen in in English, it will translate sort of a soft conjunction in Greek that's de. Your, your strong con- and is chi, your strong but is Allah, but there's another word that's de. And de can, eat, sometimes it can be translated and, sometimes it can be translated but. It just sort of moves the action down the road. Uh, so it, uh, it's important in English, it's not always as clear uh, what's coming, what, what's developing there. So he gives some examples here. So Numbers 13.31, But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So that begins with a but, indicating contrast between these men who said this and those that are mentioned earlier in the chapter. Second Corinthians 11.1, 1, And it happened... In the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, the, uh, David sent Joab and his servants, so there's a connective there, with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Amnon and besieged Rabbah. So you have a progression there indicated by and. It's, it's indicating movement from uh, one uh, thing to, to another. Luke 22.6, but not so among you. On the contrary, so again, this introduces contrast. Uh, it can and can indicate an order: delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's not only add, adding something, but it's indicating a result. Uh, 
other connectives are your logical connectives, therefore, wherefore, um, because, for, these, these are also important terms. Now he goes on to point out that literary structure identifies purpose. Uh, and, and, and it identifies the characters and identifies their relation to things. And so it's important to lay out that kind of a, of a structure. And he lists several different kinds of structure. There's biographical structure. Now, this is a great example is Genesis 12 through 50. You have the story of the life of Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. So that's a biographical structure. You have something of a biographical structure in parts of the Gospels. You have uh, more of a biographical structure at the opening part of, of Exodus. But if you think about Exodus, you, you sort of have a historical structure in Exodus 1 through 19, but starting uh, with the giving of the Mosaic Law, the rest of Exodus is giving uh, the stipulations that are in the law and all of the rules and regulations for not only civil law, but also uh, ritual law. There's also geographical structure. If you look at um, Joshua and the story of the conquest, there's movement, so it's important to take a look at that uh, geographical structure. Uh, but you don't just have one kind of structure. Joshua also has a historical structure. It's geographical movement as they conquer the land, plus it's describing the, uh, the history. Uh, sometimes there's chronological structure as well as ideological structure. Now turn over to page 121, 121, and there's a listing of the laws of structure. Now these are important to think about as you're reading through a passage. Is the author describing cause and effect? Cause and effect. Now that's page 121 on mine. It's the last page or two in chapter, uh, chapter 15. I don't, some of you have much newer editions. Is it the same page? 125. Okay. Uh, 125 gives, you have cause and effect. This is, and you just read through these. Uh, where you have an event, a concept, or an action that causes another. And key terms that indicate that would be therefore, so, then, or as a result. Uh, another law is the law of climax, where there's a progression of events or ideas that climb to a certain high point, uh, a resolution of the conflict, or some, something of that nature uh, before uh, descending. Then you have the law of comparison, where there's a comparison of things, as well as the next law, which is the law of contrast, where you see uh, things that are contrasted with one another, things that are unlike or dissimilar. Uh, the fourth, or the fifth, rather, is the explanation or reason, where an idea is presented or a statement is made, and then the next verse begins because or for which is showing the reason for the statement that is made uh, before that. Uh, then you may have an interchange. Sometimes there's conversation. Sometimes there's, it's rhetorical that goes back and forth. Uh, the sixth or seventh is introduction and summary. And this, as we've seen in our study in James, James 1, 1 through 18 is an introduction. 
and then you have a conclusion at the end of the end, end, end of the book. Sometimes there are summary statements that are made within the narrative, uh, sort of sort of concluding statements that are made. Um, purpose statement. Y'all can read through that. Anybody have any questions on any of those uh, those laws that are listed there in terms of the laws of structure? All right, now think about those as we continue to do assignments related to observation. Think in terms of, th- of, of how things are structured in that way. Now it's time for us to take a break, so we'll take about a 10-minute about a break, and then we'll come back and we'll look at Chapter 18 and begin to work with Nehemiah. <laughs>